Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that there, is, there are some available on the table in the foyer. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the scriptures so that you can read the story of Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection uh, for yourself at your leisure. We would highly encourage you to do so. Mark chapter 2, as you're finding your way there, a couple of years ago, my dad was diagnosed with a little condition known as RLS, uh, which stands for the restless leg syndrome. And it's basically a condition where my dad's legs feel like they're burning constantly. There's this tingling sensation that he he feels all the time, which makes him very, very uncomfortable. So he'll come home after a day of work, and he will try to find some relief for his legs by sitting in the recliner for a little while, and he'll prop his legs up and and sprawl out there. But eventually, uh, the burning sensation in his legs is just too much for him to handle, so he has to shift positions. He has to move to another part of the room, so he'll go to the couch, and he'll sprawl out there and elevate his legs in hopes to find some relief and when that doesn't work, he will then lay on the floor in the living room and curl his body into positions I've never seen. I did not believe he could actually curl into at his age, but that's how desperate he, he is in trying to find relief for this burning sensation that he feels in his legs constantly. And I remember watching my father just wrestling with this and thinking to myself, I'm watching, I'm looking at a picture of my own soul so many times. Because I know deep down inside, there there is a part of me, especially outside of Christ, where my soul is restless, where there's a burning sensation within me, and I distort my life in various ways in order to find relief, in order to find peace, in order to find rest. And I do not think I am alone in that struggle. In fact, I think one indication of the fallen human condition is that every person on the planet struggles with something that is appropriately called restless soul syndrome. That the human condition is one of burning and yearning. The human condition is one in which we find ourselves restless and so we distort our lives and we assume all types of positions in the world that is in order to find some degree of relief and peace. It's not unlike what Augustine said back in the day when he described human beings, those of us created in the image of God and and what that means for us. He says, you know, you were created by God and for God, but your heart is restless and will remain so until it finds its rest in God. That we've been created for a particular type of relationship with our creator that only he can satisfy and only he can fulfill. Now with that in mind, we turn our attention to Mark chapter 2. And now at first glance, this may seem like a strange passage for us to step into on Easter Sunday. I mean, it doesn't explicitly mention the resurrection of Jesus. We're not hanging out at the empty tomb this morning, at least in that sense. But this is a passage, I assure you, it's one that speaks to the effects of the resurrection in our lives. It speaks to the concern of Easter, as you know that Easter is concerned with rest, and Easter is concerned with life, and this is a passage that speaks to Easter Easter concerns. You see it when you step into verse 23, and we're told what day this moment took place. It says one Sabbath day. It says one Sabbath day, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. 
And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were saying to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on, here it is again, the Sabbath? Then in verse 25, Jesus says to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, and here's the key, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this bombshell statement in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So you find this the thread of the Sabbath running from verse 23 to verse 28. The word is mentioned five times, and it's a word that spoke to a specific day of the week, but it is a word that describes a specific condition that God desires for his people, and that is a condition of rest. That is a condition of peace. The word Sabbath literally means uh, rest, and it literally means uh, to cease from activity. And it was a, it's a huge theme throughout the storyline of the Bible. It's, in fact, one of the first emphases that occurs in the beginning of the Bible when God created the universe. You read back through Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you'll read the story of creation, and you'll see God speaking everything into existence. And it tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that over a series of six days, God created different things. Then on the seventh day, we are told that God ceased from his activity. He rested after creation. And when he rested in that moment, it wasn't because he was fatigued. God was not tired. He rested in that moment in order to enjoy what he created. That's what Sabbath meant for God. And then later, when God redeemed Israel from Egypt in the book of Exodus, he brings them through the wilderness en route to the promised land, which was to be a land of peace, a land of rest. A land in which God's people could enjoy God's presence. And as he was leading them from point A to point B, taking them along this journey, eventually God gave them a series of commands to obey. You find in Exodus chapter 20, the, a list of 10 commandments that are core moral commandments in the life of God's people in the Old Testament. Well, the fourth one on that list concerned this idea of Sabbath this idea of rest, this idea of ceasing from activity. And it's the longest of all the commandments, and it is one of the commandments that actually marked Israel out from all the other nations that surrounded them. This is what that command, commandment says. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested, Sabbathed, the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. So he commands his people to, to cease from their activity on the Sabbath day, which would run from sunset on Friday and it would run all the way to sunset on Saturday. And during that window of time, Israel was to concentrate, cease from their activity and concentrate on who their God is and what their God had done for them. 
And when they would slide into that moment during the week, it wasn't that they became lazy and everyone just started taking naps. When they slid into that moment of the week, they took that opportunity to enjoy God together. So the whole idea of Sabbath that the Lord was prescribing for his people was to help them cease from activity and to consecrate their faith upon God in an effort to enjoy him and in an effort for God to massage rest and peace into their souls, into their lives. And this was one of the markers that set Israel apart from all the other nations. There were two distinguishing features of the people of Israel, one of which was circumcision. Circumcision and Sabbath keeping were the two uh, unique features and practices that set Israel apart from everyone else. Now, when you think about those, those two markers, it's kind of easy to tell whether or not circumcision is being practiced, right? It, it's kind of obvious in some ways. Sabbath keeping is not so obvious. How do you tell whether or not someone's really ceasing from activity and enjoying God? How do you quantify that? And so what happens is, over the history of God's people, different leaders in their midst, especially coming into the first century Jewish world that Jesus is engaging in this moment, by that time, many people had given thought to what it means to cease from activity and to enjoy God. And then people began to do what people have a tendency to do, and they tried to micromanage the process for people. And so what happens is leaders began to interpret the Sabbath command, and they tried to apply it in tangible, manageable ways for people. The problem is they started compounding God's law and adding to it rules and regulations that ruptured the intent of the Sabbath. So they said, look, if you're going to, although God intends for the Sabbath, for this day of rest to be replenishing to your soul where you get to enjoy God together, these religious leaders were applying and compounding a bunch of rules and factoring them into the equation, and it ruptured God's intent for the Sabbath. So much so that by the time Jesus is engaging the world in this moment. A lot of these rules, a lot of these regulations, they started to be codified in various tractates. And, and by the time the end of the first century, you turn into the second century, they begin to put all these rules and regulations into various writings. One writing is called the Talmud. Another writing is called the Mishnah. And when you read through this and you see what people expected from others in order to keep the Sabbath holy, the list is tedious. And in many ways, the list is laughable. It's not something that you would really expect people to want to follow through and actually enjoy doing so. I mean, you just consider some of, the, some of the ways in which they required, Pharisees in particular, required others to keep Sabbath. They say, okay, if you're going to cease from activity, that means you must not plow. That kind of makes sense. You, you don't plow on the Sabbath. You don't hunt on the Sabbath. You don't butcher on the Sabbath. You don't, you don't do your ordinary occupation on the Sabbath. But then they went a little further and they really fleshed some things out. They made it a rule that a person could not tie or loosen knots on the Sabbath. So you were, you were defying God if you tied your, your shoes, they wore sandals, or if you strapped your sandals. In some ways, if you did it too much or too often over the course of that day, you were defying God. But then they would also say something like, well, if you were into sewing 
it's appropriate for you to sew one stitch on the Sabbath, but don't sew two stitches. Two stitches is too many. And they expected people to follow these rules in order to keep the Sabbath. If you were an author, if you liked to write, they would tell people that it's okay for you to write one letter, but don't you dare write two letters. So if you write a word, you've broken Sabbath. You've infringed upon your relationship with God by defying and breaking Sabbath. So they compounded all these rules, all these regulations upon people that ultimately betrayed God's intent for the Sabbath. And so when the Pharisees see the disciples plucking grain and eating it, they ask this question because they're asking this question not in light of God's intent for the disciples, but in light of their traditions and a lot of their regulations and a light of their rules. And so they ask the question, why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And then they engage in this conversation with Jesus. And then in the end, Jesus says this. He reminds them, look, don't, do you not remember that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? Remember God's intent. God gave the Sabbath for people's good. It's not as though God had a list of rules in his mind and he goes, you know, I think it'd be fun if, if I saw these rules being lived out, so I'm going to create humanity to do just that. That's not why God created us, right? We were not created to obey rules. We were created to engage in relationship, a restful, enjoyable relationship. And so he's saying, look, the rule, the law of the Sabbath wasn't given or Man wasn't created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift to man. But what these religious leaders did is what so many people do when we're trying to absolve the restlessness that our soul feels as we're journeying through the world that is. Because restless people, like these Pharisees, have a tendency to twist God's law into a burden rather than to treat God's law as a gift. This is what had happened to the understanding of the Sabbath in the first century. You take my daughter Delaney, for example. My daughter Delaney is five years old, and, and as her father, I believe it is good for her to take naps. She does not agree. So every day, it's a wrestling match. Delaney, you need to take a nap. Delaney, you need to take a nap. Delaney, you need to take a nap. And even when she was three, she was already coming up with excuses on why she didn't want to rest, why she didn't want to listen to me. She would say that's when she would try to clean her room, right, when it was nap time. Or that's when she would decide that, that or that's when, that's when she would think, oh, well, I'll just play quietly by myself and maybe dad won't notice. Or that's the moment she has to go potty and she would go potty for a really, really, really long time and it turns out she's just playing in the bathroom. And so she would push back against my counsel as I had to encourage her to get rest because I know what's best for her. And, and then eventually, Kim and I started just asking her the question, Kim, uh, Delaney, do you believe that me and your mom know what's best for you? And if she looked at us and she would say yes, we'd say, okay, get some rest. Go take a nap. When it comes to the Sabbath dynamic, the rest God wants to produce within our lives, that law, as well as all the other commandments that you see littering throughout the Old Testament and the New, understand that all of that is given to us. God gives them to us with our best interests in mind. But what we do in our restlessness is we take these laws, these rules, these commands that God intends to produce life in us and life for us, and we twist them and we turn them into a burden by applying them in ways that God never intended. 
And so this is what's going down in this moment. This is the situation that Jesus is speaking into. And he's reminding them, he's, which is the question that you and I must ask ourselves as we're wrestling through our relationship with God and we're thinking about the restlessness of our souls, ultimately everything boils down to whether or not we believe God wants what's best for us. Do you believe God wants what's best for you? If you believe he does, then that affects how you perceive his law. It affects how you perceive his commands. It affects how you perceive his word. Do you believe God wants what's best for you? You see, this was the struggle that originally broke the world. What broke the world was a struggle with that question. You consider again, back in Eden, after God created everything and then he rested and just started enjoying all that he had made, there were two people, a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, who were living in paradise. They had full access to God, unhindered fellowship, unhindered enjoyment with their maker, with their God. But there was one rule that God set up in Eden, one command. He told them there's, you can eat from all the trees, all the, all the fruit, all the vegetables, everything that you see you can eat from and enjoy, but don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God gave them one command in Eden. Now, what's interesting about that whole exchange is that God never explains why. He doesn't tell Adam and Eve why they could not eat from that one tree. Was the fruit poisonous? Would it kill? What, what, what was wrong with it? God doesn't tell them. And some of you may not like this, but the reason why God didn't tell them is because ultimately they were to take God's word for it. God did not have to give them an explanation. But when you think about the fact that God doesn't explain why that one tree was off limits, you're reminded of the fact that God did not create them for rules. He created them for relationship. And that relationship they were to enjoy with God was contingent upon trust. Would Adam and Eve believe that God wanted what's best for them? But then you know how the story goes, perhaps. See, the serpent slithers in and he convinces Adam and Eve that God doesn't want what's best for them. He tells them that because he said they can't eat from that tree, God must be holding something back from them. And so he lies to them. He tells them God's not trustworthy. God is not good. God's commands are not worthy to obey because he's just giving those to you to oppress you and to hold you back. And so they hear that lie. They believe it. They take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they eat it. And in that moment, the world broke. In that moment, restlessness invaded the heart of every human being so that we step onto the planet with a heart that is predisposed to not trust God, to not believe that he wants what's best for us. And then we read other commands, other expectations, other standards that God has for people. And we think, well, that's ridiculous. Those are absurd. Those are oppressive. We're not understanding that all of the commands God gives to his people are intended for their good. And so in our restlessness is rooted in the lie that we cannot trust our creator. We cannot trust our God. And different people respond differently to that lie that is running through the heart of every person on the planet. There are some who respond by becoming like the Pharisees in this passage. There are some who respond by becoming very, very religious and they 
attempt to carry the law. They say, okay, God isn't good, but he does have all these requirements. He does, all, does have all these laws. I'm going to keep them so that I can force his hand to bless me. And so all of a sudden they attempt to carry the law, believing that if they can do enough for God, if they can obey his rules enough, if they can keep Sabbath perfectly, then that will right the ship. And the blessings that God is apparently holding back from people, they can take the law, use it as a lever, and just pry his hands open so that blessings can flow, so that God would be good to people in response to what they do and how well they do it. So religious people attempt to carry the law. Some of you, perhaps, are here today in an effort to carry the law. You, you think just by coming to church on Easter Sunday somehow merits a special degree of favor from God for you. But when we have this approach, when we respond to our restlessness by becoming religious and we give ourselves to obedience that isn't necessarily anchored in love or motivated by grace or aware of God's goodness, when we do that, we end up giving ourselves to a life that we cannot ultimately live. What's ironic about this passage is that the Pharisees are breaking the Sabbath while they are accusing the disciples of doing so. The fact that the Pharisees are in the grain field and they see the disciples taking and plucking the grain and eating it, it means that they've already violated their own rules because there was also a rule that came out that said a person could not travel more than 800 meters on the Sabbath. So chances are high that they had to travel further than that to get to where the disciples are and to see what was taking place. So the standards that they are holding up for them, they're not even living by because religious people tend to not, they're unable to carry out their own standards with consistency. And so the law ultimately becomes too heavy for every person to follow regardless of what, how you define the law. You cannot live out your own standards. The rules and expectations you have for yourself, the rules and expectations you try to apply to other people, you cannot live consistently. The law, whether it's God's law or whether it's a law you've made up, the law is ultimately too heavy for you to carry. It's not unlike when I was in the seventh grade and I played football. Yes, I played football in the seventh grade. I was the scrawniest kid in the, on the team, and, and I walked into the weight room, and I'd never been in a weight room before, so I was overwhelmed by all the weight, and this is heavy, and, and I walked in, and there was a moment where all the players had to max out, which meant they had to get on the bench press, and they had to do one rep at the most weight that they could possibly do, and everybody was taking these round plates and putting them on the end of the dumbbell, or end of the barbell, and, and so I said, okay, well, I'll just do what everybody else is doing, so I put my plates on the barbell, and then I laid down, and the spotter gave me the, the bar, and I about broke my chest. I mean, I took that bar, and it collapsed, and it about crushed me. And so much so that I'm kind of waddling like this, and I'm trying to shake the plates off, and guys come to my rescue. They pick it up for me. They remove the plates and say, okay, well, just try the bar. And I said, try the bar? No way. But sure enough, I got down. I tried the bar. Same thing. I couldn't bench press the bar. It, it about broke me. Well, the law is too heavy for any person to carry. If you try to carry it, if you try to solve your restlessness by becoming religious, the law will break you. The law will crush you. The law is too heavy for any person on the planet to carry. 
And so there are some who respond to restlessness by adopting religion. But then there's a flip side of that. There are some who respond not by embracing religion, but by, by rejecting religion and becoming what may be described as irreligious. If you read down in this passage, you get into the end of verse 6 of chapter 3, and you have the Pharisees there, but then there's another group mentioned. They're called the Herodians. The Herodians were a group of people that were part of the Roman society and the Roman culture. At this point in time, the Romans are occupying Jerusalem. They are spreading their Greco-Roman codes of conduct, which in many ways contradicted the law of God and did not complement it very well. And so the Pharisees, some say the Pharisees were a conservative, conservative reaction against the Herodians, that they kind of shored themselves up in rules and regulations distorting the law because the Herodians were uh, messing up the culture. And so they shored themselves up, became more religious, and the Herodians then would represent irreligion, Roman irreligion, at least when compared to biblical, the biblical faith. So the Pharisees hated the Herodians. The Herodians didn't get along with the Pharisees, and there has been a comparison made that says, well, it's kind of like the blue state, red state divide in America. You got the conservative red state folks who get afraid when cultures change, and they start shoring themselves up, and they get very defensive. They live out of fear. Then you got the blue state liberal types who, who are just rejecting and bucking all traditions, just want to do everything new, very open, and that type of thing. And you get this collision of cultures. Well, that analogy has been drawn between the Pharisees and the Herodians. The problem is um, we're not there. there. There may be some similarities, but we're not killing each other yet in this country, right? The Pharisees and the Herodians, they would kill each other. They hated each other. Which was what interesting when you step into verse 6, you see them coming on the same team in support of being anti-Jesus. This is what's so fascinating. The Pharisees and the Herodians actually link arms to oppose Jesus. And the reason for that is because Jesus doesn't fit in anyone's box. Jesus doesn't fit in anyone's category. Jesus is his own category. And so when he related to people, whether they were religious or irreligious, whether they were someone trying to carry the law or they were in their irreligion rejecting the law or dismissing the law or trying to write their own rules and live their own life, it doesn't matter who he was engaging. Jesus related to every person as a restless person, as a lost person. And you can be restless in your religion, and you can be restless in your irreligion. You can be lost in your religion, lost in your irreligion. Jesus related to everybody in the same way. He saw every person wired in that same condition, which is why he does all the things that he does through his life and his death and his resurrection. Because ultimately, whether you, find your, whether you are religious or irreligious, Although on the surface of things, if you had two people, a religious person trying to carry the law, an irreligious person dismissing the law, on the surface, they look completely different. But understand that both of their lifestyles, both of the ways in which they're trying to bring rest to their lives is driven by the same lie. God is not trustworthy. God does not want what's best for his people, for people he's created. And so the same struggle is going on. They're they're buying into the original lie of the serpent. They're twisting God's law into a burden, not a gift. And in reply to this moment, when Jesus steps into this conversation, it says in verse 25, it, Jesus pulls out an example in his response to the Pharisees. And it's an interesting example because the example has nothing to do with the Sabbath, has nothing to do with rest. It has nothing to do with peace. It has nothing to do with the concern that the Pharisees have. 
He pulls out this example uh, that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and, and he puts the conversation into the place of the tabernacle or the temple. He puts the conversation into a moment, of, uh, a moment that went down there. And he's pointing out how David ate the bread of the presence, which was illegal for him to do. And then he turned and he gave that same bread to those who were with him as they were running from Saul, fleeing for their lives and those types of things. And it's an interesting example because Jesus squares the conversation up on in the temple before he goes to explaining and clarifying the Sabbath. And here's, there's a lot of reasons for that, but for the sake of time, I'll just give you this, this one. He takes the conversation regarding the Sabbath and he takes it to a conversation or an example that concerns the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is what went down in the temple. The ceremonial law is what God gave to Israel in order to help Israel connect with him in relationship. Now, when you think about all the religions and spiritualities that exist in the world, if you compared and contrasted religions and spiritualities, you're going to see that there's a lot of similarity when it comes to ethics and morality. A lot of similarity when it comes to ethics and morality. But the difference between all the religions and spiritualities in the world isn't so much what's expected or what's required or what the law is. The difference is how a person connects with God. And so in our restlessness, yes, in our restlessness, we twist God's law, turning it into a burden rather than receiving it as a gift. But at the same time, in our restlessness, in our efforts to connect with God, to find rest in our souls, even in relationship with God, there's a tendency for restless people to, do, to be defined by their work rather than Christ's work. And so what's going on in this moment is that Jesus takes the conversation into the temple because he's about to blow everyone's minds. He's about to call attention to the very thing he has come to accomplish. He's come to root out the lie of the serpent that says God is not trustworthy. And he's going to do that through the work he accomplishes that is designed to replace everything that went down in the temple. This is why when Jesus moves out of the temple back to talking about the Sabbath in verse 27, he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then this bombshell statement, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now don't simplify that. Jesus is not saying that he simply has the authority to change the rules about the Sabbath. He is saying, I am the Sabbath. I've come to fulfill everything that the Sabbath pointed people to. But not just the Sabbath. Jesus comes to fulfill everything that the elements in the temple designed to help people connect with God. He's come to fulfill all of that too. He's saying, I've come to bring rest to your restless souls by doing work you cannot do. And this is what Paul would iterate in Colossians chapter 2, a fascinating statement where Paul would say this in Colossians chapter 2. He alludes to the Sabbath. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He says, these are shadow, a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I've come to replace all of this. And so now the way people are going to connect to God isn't through their religion necessarily, isn't through their irreligion. The way they connect to God is by letting his work define them. 
This is why in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus would say to everyone who heard his voice, come to me, everyone who is heavy laden, everyone who is burdened, everyone who is restless, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you life. And then the question is, well, how does he do that? How can Jesus say that? How does Jesus replace everything in the, in the temple? How is Jesus really the Lord of the Sabbath? Well, this is when you and I begin to focus upon the work he accomplished. This is where we turn our attention to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and we think about what Jesus has done, because first, his work involved him fulfilling the law completely. You remember we talked Friday night on our Good Friday gathering that as Jesus hung from the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we said in that moment that Jesus went through hell on the cross so that people do not have to. But you know that that wasn't the only thing that Jesus said from the cross. He then later said, it is finished. And after he said, it is finished, he died. And it is very reminiscent of what went down in creation. After God created the world in six days, he said, in essence, it is finished, it is good, and God rested. The work was done. There was, no more, there was nothing else to create. And then when the fall happened, when Adam and Eve rejected God's goodness and bought into the lie of the serpent, that broke the world, and then God went to work again. Only the work he was picking back up wasn't a work of creation. It was a work of rec- recreation. It was a work of redemption. So that when Jesus is on the cross and he's dying there, when he hollers out, it is finished, it's echoing what the Father said after creation. It is finished. The work is complete. Everything's good. I've I've done what is necessary to redeem my people and to recreate the world. Jesus fulfilled the law completely. He obeyed God entirely. This means that Jesus is the sacrifice of atonement. He is the one who died for our sins so that we can be accepted by God and have rest restored. And we know that is the case because when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, verifying everything that he talked about when he says things like, I am the Lord of the Sabbath verifying everything that he accomplished when he died on the cross. When Jesus rose from the grave, he's telling the world, my death meant something. And it meant something for everyone. And so he rose from the grave, fulfilling the law completely, God accepting his sacrifice. And Jesus does the work that so many of us are trying to do. So many of us are trying to find a degree of semblance of rest and peace. We distort our lives in religion. We distort our lives in irreligion, not recognizing we were created by God and for God, and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in God, in Jesus, who lived, who died, who rose again. We want to be defined by his work, not our work. Our work falls flat. His work accomplishes the goal. So Jesus fulfilled the law. He is the sacrifice of atonement. We come to him, and when we do, we know that Jesus then gives us life personally. He gives us life. You know this when you step back into the story. The the controversy that Jesus pointed out concerned the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence sat on the table in the temple, and it represented and reminded Israel of how God sustained their lives when they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. God miraculously provided them with bread from heaven, and they ate it every day. 
It was enough for their needs, and they ate it, they enjoyed it, God sustained them, he gave them life. Well, understand that when Jesus stepped into the world, he would say in John 6, I am what? I am the bread of life. That bread points to me. I'm fulfilling its purpose. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You can have life when you come to the resurrected Christ. This is who Jesus is, giving life personally. He is the bread of life, so we come to him to find what our hearts most desire and what our hearts most need. We come to Jesus being defined by his work, not our own. We don't have to work for life. We receive life. We don't have to work for value. We're given value in Jesus. But then there's one last thing that Jesus does. Not only does his work involve fulfilling the law completely, giving life personally, Jesus supplies rest eternally. He gives rest to our souls. He is the Lord of rest. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of everything God intended the Sabbath to be, only now we're not talking about one day a week. We're talking about stepping into a relationship and finding rest that begins now and that characterizes our lives every day and that characterizes our lives on into eternity. This rest, this enjoyment, this relationship with God we were designed for. So let me ask you a question. Are you resting in relationship with the risen Christ? Are you resting in relationship with the risen Christ? For those of you who are here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, understand that Jesus' call to come to him and he will give you rest is being extended right now. For those of you who have relationship with Jesus, perhaps you've allowed some things to disrupt the rest and the peace and the life that he wants to provide you. And maybe you need to take some time today to consider how his resurrection guarantees that he will supply you with eternally, eternal rest, perpetual rest. And you just need to rest in your relationship with Christ once again. Whatever the case may be, I hope and pray that we would find ourselves resting in relationship with the risen, the risen Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you and the work your son accomplished for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection, I pray that his work would define us. I pray that his work would supply us with rest and grant us life, that his death and resurrection would be everything for us. And Father, if we are tempted in this moment to not believe that you want what's best. I pray, God, you would give us grace to resist that temptation and that we would see that your best is Jesus. And if you want what's best for us, we know that that means you want Jesus for us. And so we're coming to him now in this moment to put our faith, to put our trust, to square up our lives upon. He's everything that we need. We trust him, we love him, and we praise you, God, for for providing us all that we need in him. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.